0: Welcome. Thank you for listening. We're currently working our way through the book of Joshua, celebrating the God who keeps every promise he has ever made. If you're in the Milwaukee area and you're looking for a church home, we'd love to meet you. You can connect with us more through our website, harvestcommunity.org. In Moses' place, Israel has a divinely installed promised land. So the book of Joshua is an account of God's people in the promised land that even today that God directs. God, a real power is in the people that God directs. Those who look to Him, those who seek Him. Not in secular politicians, not in world leaders. They think you don't know, but I know you know. And here's what we know about Joshua from Pastor Cabe's message last week. Joshua's given name was Hosea, which meant salvation, but Moses changed his name. Moses renamed him to Joshua, which means Jehovah is salvation, or God provides salvation. It's the same meaning as Jesus' name. Now, some of you may know that there's a whole branch of biblical study called uh, Typology, And that's where we get to see that there are types of Christ in some of the characters of the Old Testament. Typology sees that there are some people who are a pattern of the role of Jesus Christ or has similar responsibility that Jesus Christ had. Now, they're incomplete They're inadequate compared to Jesus, but there are some striking similarities in the lives of some of the characters in the Old Testament that kind of mirror or reflect (laughs) Jesus. So it's not just the name that makes uh, Joshua a type of Christ. It's his role as deliverer or, or warrior that overcomes Israel's enemies, though Jesus is the better Joshua who overcame all enemies for all people. Joshua is also a servant who very often follows God's will, though Jesus did it flawlessly his whole life. And we're going to see today that Joshua obeys God's law. He's commissioned to not swerve to the right or to the left. And Joshua usually obeys, but Jesus always obeyed every law of God. So Jesus is the better Joshua. Jesus is the better deliverer, the better servant, the better observer of God's law. And with only God and Joshua in the context of these four verses this morning, the outline is fairly simple. The title of our message again is Be Strong and Courageous, and we today can be strong and courageous just like Joshua for the same reasons that Joshua was to be strong and courageous. First, we're gonna see that God fulfills his ancient promise to Joshua and to us. God's powerful word transformed Joshua and us. God promises his presence to always be with Joshua and with us. So follow along while I read these four verses again and then we're gonna look at them individually. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people, Israel, to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, it's one thing for Joshua to watch God Work mightily through Moses while all of Israel wandered around the desert for 40 years, maybe even anticipating future victories. But it's quite another thing for Joshua to now take possession of the land by battling the giants there and to do it without Moses. I think the concern for Joshua was not about God being insufficient. I don't think that's where he was thinking. I think Joshua was more worried that his own faith would be insufficient. Old story, years ago, I read an illustration about a, a well-known atheist of the 1800s. About all I remember are the broad strokes of the story. Uh, it seems that this well-known atheist was to join a boating party on the Niagara River. Uh, it seemed that, uh, that they were to start many, many miles up river, and then just kind of enjoy the afternoon, floating lazily down the river, and then dock before they got to the falls. It was such a lovely day that the boating party had got distracted and they realized way too late that they were too close to the falls. Panic swept through the boat. Uh, Fear uh, of their predicament. Uh, This atheist cried out to God for help. And miraculously, they made it to the shore. As they were catching their breath from feverishly paddling, one of the party boat passengers asked this atheist, why did you call out to God if you truly believe that there is no God? His response went something like this. While atheism is a completely sufficient belief to float you down a river, it's wholly inadequate to go with you over the falls. (laughs) Yep, sounds about right. So verse 6 starts out right away with God strengthening Joshua's faith, his heart. Again, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Now, to understand this, meaning why the Lord had to tell Joshua to be strong and and courageous, the reason is actually found back in verse 3. Caleb read that last week. Joshua is fearful because of what the Lord said back in verse 3. Verse 3 said this, every place that the sole of your feet will tread upon, I've given you just as I promised to Moses. Joshua is afraid because he knows this. You can own something but not possess it, right? God is saying in verse 6 that this land was his, was God's. And he promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the descendants way back then, Genesis 12. And now it's Joshua's for the taking. It belonged to, but it was not possessed by, Israel's forefathers. Here's the principle that Joshua was afraid of. You can't take it if you don't tread on it the inheritance of land would not become a reality until Joshua's faith and the obedience made it a certainty. God's saying, you have to tread on it to possess it. Joshua, be strong and courageous. The land, I own it. I, I promised it. You tread on it, and I will ensure you possess it. Step out in faith on it, pun intended, and it's yours. Joshua needs to hear, be strong and courageous from God because there are giants in the land. There are fortified cities in the land. There are generations of well trained Canaanite armies in the land. What Joshua fears are the battles with these powerful resident armies. To tread on it in order to possess it meant Israel had to fight for it. To claim God's ancient promise to possess the land, Joshua had to lead Israel, not on a gentle stroll through the land, but on progressive military strikes. And what about Israel's army? Well, Joshua's got some men. He's got men for whom generations have made bricks out of clay and straw. Joshua has brickmakers, not warriors, but he's got Yahweh. The direction to Joshua to be strong and courageous, that's based on an ancient promise. An ancient promise, God's promise, and God is a promise-keeping God. Amen? And that's almost everything Joshua needs. What else does he need? Well, verses 7 and 8. Only be strong, and God ramps it up here, very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it, from the right hand to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. What strengthens Joshua, what Joshua needs to hear is that God will bless Joshua's obedience with success, just like he gave Moses as Moses obeyed the law that God had given him. Moses loomed large during the wandering. Moses prevailed over every challenge that the desert and mankind could bring against him. And Joshua had a front row seat to all of that. The future uncertainty of uh, what battling giants in the promised land could look like, that fear shrunk in view of history. The memories of Moses' faithful obedience and God giving him success at every turn. Joshua could be more strong and very courageous on the strength of his own ingenuity and military savvy? No. No, but he could be strengthened, he could be encouraged with the assurance of the same success that God granted to Moses by him following the instruction that he was given in faithful obedience. You see, this direction to be strong and very courageous, it's an even stronger exhortation than the previous one. And it's based not on God's ancient promise of the land, like in verse 6, but on God's power through his word. But how does that work? Well, here's what it doesn't mean, and here's what it does mean. Most scholars understand the book of the law that's referenced here is actually the first five books of the Old Testament Genesis through Deuteronomy. And while there are some specific battles, recorded in those books, there aren't, there's no military strategic planning in any of it. There's no chapter in Exodus entitled How to Win a War. And you're going to look in vain throughout Deuteronomy to find a chapter entitled Exploiting the Military Weaknesses of the Canaanites. It's not there. So if there's no stru- instruction in the book of the law on how to strategically defeat enemies, how in the world could it militarily be helpful in defeating the enemies that they would face? And the answer is, it doesn't do that. It can't do that. But what learning and obeying and teaching the nation to obey, the book of the law does, though, is create godly character. It would teach the whole nation how to live before a God and trust in their good and powerful God. The book of law was perfectly designed to instruct men and women and soldiers and children on how to live in faithful obedience so that they could trust God in every circumstance. The book of law did not teach them how to be an invincible army, but rather how to be a faithful people of godly character that trusted in their invincible God. That's what it did. It was scripture that would conform Joshua and actually all of Israel's thinking and character to the mind of God. In that way. In that way, Joshua and Israel would prosper and have good success. And Joshua would become the the warrior and the leader of godly character if the law would not depart from his mouth. Meaning that he would be constantly speaking it, constantly teaching it to others. In that way, Joshua and Israel would prosper and have good success. And Joshua would become the the warrior and the leader of godly character if he would meditate on it day and night. Meaning to often, regularly think about it. God's word was to consistently be on Joshua's mind. He would be transformed by it. Uh, The late pastor, James Montgomery Boyce, adds this understanding of the word meditate. I think it's helpful. He says meditation is a step beyond just the mere knowledge of scripture or mere talking about it. Meditation implies reasoning about, deducing things from God's word. Meditation has Application as a goal. Lastly, in faithful obedience to God's word, Joshua and Israel would, pro, uh, would prosper, would have good success. And Joshua would become the warrior, the leader of godly, uh, godly character, if he would do everything in the book of the law. He must obey his commands fully. Act on it. He wasn't to engage just the parts of scripture that he liked or that were easy for him. Joshua was strengthened and he was encouraged by the the 40-year, the 14,600 daily examples of God previously blessing and forming godly character in Moses. He watched that. He saw that. He saw Moses' faithfulness to the law of God Uh, and gave him to, uh, that God gave him to record and to live out for all, including Joshua, to see. Joshua must do that as well. But even that, that's not sufficient for Joshua because there's still, he still seems to be struggling. So God gives him one more encouragement. And this call was based not on an ancient promise, but on an ongoing promise. The promise of God's presence with him. Verse 9 reads, I have, not, have I not commanded you? Be strong, courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You can kind of hear God's insistence in the face of Joshua's reluctance. Have I not commanded you? Verse 9 is a close restatement of verse 5 that Pastor Caleb showed us last week. Basically, it says in a positive way what was previously stated in a negative way. Uh, Verse 5 from last week says, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And so maybe by now, maybe by now you're like Joshua. Joshua. Just like Joshua finally became back then, strong and courageous. And you're going to see next week that Joshua takes God at his word, immediately starts directing the nation to prepare to possess the promised land. And now maybe this morning, maybe you too, have seen that God is to be trusted and he is to be obeyed. Today, everyone who's a Christ follower uh, we all have spiritual battles. The real battles take place in our hearts and in our minds. We need to dispel the fear and the weakness in them. Now, we can live out victories in life because through his word, through God's word, through God's spirit, through God's people, God is forming our character, our hearts and minds to conform with his We can be strong and courageous because Jesus has already been victorious in our behalf. The victory is ours. We just need to battle through it as we walk in it to victory. As I wrap this up, you know this, but I'll be Captain Obvious As believers, the enduring lessons of Joshua are spiritual and eternal, not tactical and temporal. The better Joshua, Jesus, has won a much greater victory. Victory over all the powers of evil and sin and the grave. We battle a sin nature within and the evil one without. But again, the war is already won. Jesus won that on the cross, and we need to live out that victory every day. Jesus is above, and He is victorious over addiction, depression, fear, anxiety. Jesus is above and victorious over pride and greed and prejudice. Jesus, who according to his own word in Matthew 28 18 through 20, has an ancient, 2,000 year old promise to keep fulfilling in us. We are to become his lifelong disciple makers, not just disciples, disciple makers. And we need to know and obey and meditate on Scripture to be His disciple makers, so that we can lead people to faith and help them grow in their faith so we can baptize and teach others not just to know, but to obey all that Jesus has commanded. And Jesus claims all authority. And He promises to be with us wherever we go. His indwelling Spirit will be in us even to the end of the age. So let me encourage you with what the Lord has already been doing in you, Harvest. For close to 33 years, He promised victory in every battle in your life and in the life of this church. And just like in every church, the the evil one has created struggles and has created division. Harvest, you now stand in victory you here have prevailed over all of that, and I rejoice Amen. with you in that. Carvers, you are home to victory. You are a light to those who wander in darkness, and you are a refuge to those in need, those in need of safety and peace. Keep living out that inheritance The victory is is yours already, and you possess it. It's yours wherever you tread as you walk in faithful obedience. Harvest, this has been you. This is you. This needs to be you going forward. You need to live in that vision even more that God, God has given you through Pastor Caleb and the elders. Harvest, keep being a home for the lost. And a refuge for those in need. I close with this illustration and application from Pastor John Ortberg. This contains both an affirmation and a caution for harvest. Pastor John shares this. He says Several years ago, we, meaning his family, uh, took a vacation. Uh, we went to Massachusetts and we visited a little museum on Nantucket Island. It was devoted to a volunteer organization that was formed centuries ago, over 200 years ago. In those days, travel by the sea was extremely dangerous. And given the storms, the Atlantic and the very rocky coast of Massachusetts, many, many lives were lost. Very close to shore, within less than a mile of the shore. And a group of people who lived on that island just couldn't stand to think of people were dying so close to them, so they they went into the life-saving business. They banded together to form what was originally called the the Humane Society. Now, we think of animals with that, but back then, in those days, this was a life-saving deal for them. They built these little huts that that dotted the coastline. You can still see one of them in this museum. Uh, they built these little huts containing boats and rescue equipment. They called these huts of refuge. Huts of refuge. I like that. And people were posted in those huts all the time. And their job was just to keep watching the sea. And any time the ship went down, the word would go out these men and women would devote everything. They would risk themselves to save every life they could. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, somebody was watching, everybody was willing. Now, they didn't do it for money. They didn't do it for recognition. They did it just because they valued human life. And to remind them, of how seriously they took this task and what was at stake, they kind of adopted a motto. I love this motto. You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. That's a catchy little recruiting slogan, isn't it? (laughs) You have to go out, but what about coming back? Now, you wouldn't think that would entice a whole lot of people into joining them, but it did. And it's fascinating to read the accounts of, in that museum of people who risked everything, even their lives, to save people they'd never met, to see faces they'd never seen and names they might not ever know. Harvest, that's you. That is you. And that's what God wants of you. Keep selflessly giving of yourselves to be a home to the lost and a refuge to people in need. But here's the caution. Because it can happen to you. Orkberg goes on to say, over time, things changed. And after a while, uh, what would would come to be known as the U.S. Coast Guard started to take over the life-saving task. And for a little while, the Coast Guard and this life-saving society, they worked side-by-side. Eventually, the idea that carried the day was, let the professionals do it. They get paid to do it. They're better trained. And so volunteers stopped manning the little huts. They stopped searching the coastline. Sinking ships. They stopped sending out teams to rescue people. And it's a funny thing that they, they just wouldn't bring themselves to disband. And the Life Saving Society still exists today. And it meets every once in a while in Boston or somewhere near Massachusetts or New England. They meet to have dinners. Uh, They even hand out awards for things like community service. They enjoy each other's company. They sponsor programs. They get together. They're just not in the life saving business anymore. They don't scour the coastline anymore to see if anybody's going down. They don't know the thrill anymore of what it's like to risk themselves to save a life. They don't speak those words to each other anymore. They don't say, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. They're just not in the life-saving business anymore. And Harvest, here's my caution, because it can happen to you. It can happen to a church at any time. It just doesn't happen in a day. It doesn't happen in a month. But over time, a church forgets it's in the life-saving business. It usually doesn't disband, at least not until much later. People still meet. They enjoy each other's company. But they don't talk much about outreach or evangelism or missions They still have services, building, and staff, and programs, and they might even be involved in various forms of community service. But they're just not searching. They're just not sending teams out anymore for people who are going down. They're just not really scouring the neighborhoods or their workplaces or their schools or their cities to see if there's anybody that needs to be saved. They forgot, maybe, that Jesus put this rescue effort in the hands of volunteers who would love the people that God loves so much and adopt for themselves the motto you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. Now they've got buildings and budgets and staff and meetings. They're just not in the life saving business anymore. It can happen to a church. It can happen to a small group. It can happen to an individual. And don't think it can't happen here. Don't don't think it can't. It can't. Whether or not Harvest stays in the life-saving business is in your hands. Jesus is still looking for people who are willing to go out to be in the life-saving business. That's what his church does. And you harvest, you are lifesavers. Keep being and raising up and training up lifesavers. And may God himself fulfill his promise for each of you and all of you to keep you, to grow you into an even larger home for the lost and a refuge for those in need. Let's pray. Father, as we have looked into your word, we, oh gosh, we're probably three, maybe 4,000 years removed from Joshua and the promised land. And yet your truth remains the same. You have strengthened us. You have encouraged us with a truth in your word that can help us prevail over anything that would come across our path. And Father, you have called us to learn your word, understand your word, to live out your word. Not just to live in a knowing relationship, but to to live out an infectious relationship where what we have gets passed on to others through your spirit, through your word, and through our brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, I'd ask that you would continue to work mightily in and through harvest. May your kingdom come. In Christ's name, amen.